Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Happy Friday, Food Junkies listeners. Molly here. Today, Vera interviews Dr. James Mukey from Adelaide, Australia. Just a quick announcement before we get into the episode. Sweet Sobriety is once again hosting Victoria Hama, pain and wellness coach, as she provides a group hypnotherapy experience on Wednesday, April 26th, 2023 at 7 p.m. Eastern. Let's program our brains to partner with our bodies and what it wants to do instead of always fighting it. $15 US, no recordings or replay for this session. Be sure to check the show notes for registration link. Okay, in this episode, Vera and Dr. Muki discuss his personal and professional journeys, how sugar impacts eye health, what our eyes can tell us about our health, how his colleagues react to his interventions, what's next, and our signature question. Welcome, Dr. Muki. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. I am your host today, Dr. Vera Tarman, along with Molly Painshaw. Today, we speak with ophthalmologist and Australian of the Year, Dr. James Muki. Dr. Muki trained as a medical doctor in Adelaide, South Australia, and then specialized in ophthalmology in the Royal Adelaide Hospital. He has worked across the world, for example, as a specialist in London, England, to cataract centers in Myanmar, and to outreach eye clinics in Israel. When he returned, I guess as a home base in South Australia, he founded Sight for All, a program devoted to addressing the causes of adult blindness. Dr. Muki realized early on that processed foods and sugar is the major cause of adult blindness. And at that point, he added political action along to his clinical work. He, for example, challenged the Australian nutritional guidelines, exposing how these contributed to blindness due to sugar toxicity. He called for a tax on sugary drinks. He demanded the TV industry curtail the hours of its junk food advertising so so that little kids wouldn't be exposed to that and attack supermarkets for their marketing strategies focused on getting kids to eat candy. Each time, he underscored how sugar was the cause of diabetes and poor eye health. Today at Food Junkies, we dig deep into the science of how refined sugar can destroy not only our liver, our joints, our brain. These are things we've been talking about, but now finally our eyes. You're the first person that's going to tell us all about that. So welcome, Dr. Muki. Thank you so much. Great to be with you today. Yeah, this morning in in Australia, suppose it's afternoon in the States and and in Canada. Yes, it is. So we always start with a a bit of a personal aspect. So can you, as much as you're willing, tell us your personal story? How did you get into ophthalmology and into diabetes? And how did you land into the sugar controversy? Sure. Long story, really. I, um, as a young man, loved the idea of being a doctor. You know, for as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a doctor. And to be honest, there was no one thing that drove me down that pathway. It was just a desire to, to want to help people and the idea of medicine. But particularly surgery was one that was always always appealing for me. And I loved the idea. I loved working with my my hands as a young man, as a young boy, actually. I used to buy model airplanes and oh, wow. used to construct those. I loved doing fine work with my hands. So the idea of medicine, of surgery, of microsurgery particularly, was something that really appealed. So through school, I worked so hard to get into medicine. It's not easy to get into medicine here in Australia. Uh, fortunately, I did get into medicine through medical school. I worked really hard to get into surgery but by the end of my uh, medical school and my internship, I really was um, getting a bit weary of all this study and all this hard work. I needed a bit of a change. And so at the end of my internship, I went off to work in Kenya as a young volunteer medical officer in a little rural hospital in the mountains of central Kenya, a little place called Tumutumu Hospital. And that was something that was quite a life-changing year for me because through my internship, I was mainly just encountering patients who had diseases that were chronic and self-inflicted. You know, more often than not, they were related to smoking back then. 
But also we were starting to see a poor diet creep in. We were starting to see the rise of type 2 diabetes. But I was, yeah, I was becoming a little disillusioned. You know, this is not the sort of medicine that appealed to me. So I just needed, after my year of internship, where um, it was my first year of practicing real medicine, really, seeing patients who had diseases that were predominantly preventable and just shouldn't be, I needed a change. And so I headed off to, to Kenya and had this absolutely life-changing year, which was in a beautiful part of the world, but I also had the experience of treating patients, even curing patients who had diseases that were not, as a rule, self-inflicted. There were mainly infectious diseases, malaria, TB. Uh, also had the opportunity to deliver babies, perform surgery, perform cesarean sections. So it was a really life-changing year for me. It, it reinvigorated a love of medicine. It really instilled a desire to pursue a career in public health. But the idea then of removing cataracts or performing microsurgery to restore vision to people in poor mm. communities was something that was incredibly appealing. So I then headed back to Adelaide, Australia and started training in ophthalmology and eye surgery. And then a few years later, I graduated as an ophthalmologist. And following that experience, I went with my wife. That stage we'd only been married for a couple of years. We went and worked in Jerusalem. I worked in an eye hospital on the Palestinian side. My wife actually worked in an architectural firm on the, on the Israeli side. So this extraordinary experience for both of us. And following that, I went and worked in London and studied eye cancer and then ultimately came back and settled in Adelaide uh, in uh, mid-1998. So to keep this passion, this interest in dealing with blindness in poorer communities, I started getting involved in a number of research and educational projects, predominantly in Asia, because Asia is home to half the world's blind adults and two-thirds of the world's blind kids. So these projects were what ultimately evolved into the not-for-profit that I co-founded called Sight for All. Yeah, and in there, I mean, eye health means so many things, but in there, obviously, diabetes stuck out at you as a prominent thing that you wanted to focus on. Like, like how did you get to that? And then how did you get to the idea that sugar might be the culprit behind that? Yeah, sure. So really, uh, I've been in ophthalmology for 33 years. So 40 years in medicine, 33 years in ophthalmology. And for that 33 years, I've been dealing with the consequences that diabetes inflicts on the eyes. But what I've noticed over this period of time is the growth mm. in the number of patients who I was seeing who are losing vision, had a threat to the vision, even going blind due to their diabetes, but predominantly type 2 diabetes, which makes up close to 90% of cases and is a largely avoidable man-made dietary disease. So I was seeing this growth in the number of, of people that I was treating year on, but I only ever saw myself as the guy at the end of the line who was treating the end-stage complications. I never saw it was my role to explore what was driving this and the preventability of this of this disease. It was just, you know, trying to maintain sight in these patients. But then I had this kind of light bulb moment, I suppose, in 2018, in late 2018. I was actually doing a series of talking portraits, let's say, with my son, who was a, a young filmmaker. And I was wanting to do a documentary of these talking portraits, the experience of blindness, what it actually means to, to lose vision or to be blind. And during that process, I interviewed 10 people, four were children who were born blind, which were fascinating. Four of them were elderly people who are slowly going blind at the end of their lives, and they were adapting quite well because it was a very gradual process. But the two that really hit home were, were two in the middle of their life, in the prime of their life, who were both blind due to their diabetes. Mm. One was a young corporate high-flying executive who was too busy in her job to actually have her eyes checked. And uh, unfortunately, she paid a very high price. She went blind early in her life and remains blind to this day. And the other one, which was very, very impactful, the interview uh, with him, was he was from a poorer socioeconomic background. And he tells a very harrowing story of, of going to bed one evening at the age of 50 with normal sight and waking up the next morning blind wow. in both eyes. And one of my colleagues worked really hard to try and restore his sight, but unfortunately it was too late. So his name was Neil, and, and Neil was to spend the rest of his life in darkness. And that story was... And that was because of blind, that was because of diabetes, un yeah, untreated yeah. diabetes. Yeah, so the young, the young woman had type 1 diabetes, 
which is a different disease. It's an autoimmune disease, which often develops earlier in life, whereas yeah. Neil had type 2 diabetes, and he actually developed that at the age of 26. But when he developed that, he had no idea what lay away from. He had no idea that he could potentially lose vision, go blind. And blindness is the most feared complication of diabetes. Yeah, so his story, and he talks about the last thing that he saw before he went to bed that that fateful night was the beautiful smile on the face of his wife. And, you know, he now is blind. He lost his ability to drive, his independence. He lost his ability to teach the javelin, which was a, a real passion of his. It was a thing that gave him a huge amount of joy. But you know, he talks about the thing that upsets him more than anything is that uh, he can no longer see the beautiful smiles on the faces of his his wife and his grandkids. And so it was this harrowing story that really made me sit up and think, okay, what's actually going on here with type 2 diabetes? You know, how can we potentially shift the dial on this? And I... um started uh, initially really talking about raising awareness of the need for people to have their eyes checked on a regular basis. If you have type... Let me just interrupt you. Did that fellow know he had diabetes or did he not even know that he had diabetes? Like, was he somebody that that was just not taking care of his diabetes or was it like that was his first presentation of the diabetes? No, no, no. That That's... It, I mean, waking up blind in, in both eyes is, is a rare... A yes. rare of, of diabetes, but he had type 2 diabetes. Yes. At the age of 16, he first started earning money. He was in a busy oh. role, a delivery role, and was drinking something like four litres of soft drink a day. Right. So he knew ahead of time and was just not treating it because yeah. he didn't know how important that was. Yeah. That's right. That's, and he, So he developed type 2 diabetes at the age of 26, but what he didn't realise is that yeah. all the complications that lay away for him now, patients with diabetes need to have their eyes checked on a regular yes. basis to avoid the blinding complications of this disease. Something like 98% of loss of vision blindness due to diabetes is preventable or treat- treatable, but you need to have your eyes checked on a regular basis. Right. Now, in Australia, we know, and I suspect the same as going in, in the States and in, in Northern America and Canada, is that well over half of the patients with diabetes, all types of diabetes, are not having these regular eye checks. And as such, it has now become the leading cause of blindness amongst working-age adults in our mm-hmm. countries, in working-age adults. And, and Neil was one of these victims who was completely unaware, wasn't having his eyes checked. Really, his priority was the health, and the, the happiness of his family, not his own health. And so he had neglected his health as a child. He had neglected his diabetes as an adult and has paid the, the biggest price. Yeah. Not only has he lost vision, he's actually had uh, multiple amp- amputations. He had nine amputations of his left leg over a 14-month period, finishing up with losing his entire left leg three years ago. Oh. Uh, he's also had two heart attacks. And so, you know, this is a devastating, life-threatening, limb-threatening and sight-threatening disease, which is now impacting on, in the order of 1.8 million people in my country and the the numbers would be much higher in North America no doubt. Wow okay so I thank you for that so that gives a a sort of big picture can we now look at some of the little picture like the pathology what is it about sugar and diabetes that causes all the various manifestations of eye ill health I mean you've mentioned a whole bunch of things like limb limb amputation and we already know about liver potential cirrhosis or fatty liver but what about the eye tell us about that. Yes. No, interestingly, when I started on this journey a few years ago, it was really, to me, primarily about sugar. But I think over the last few years, it's expanded beyond sugar. I think sugar is a big driver of it, and particularly the addictive nature of sugar, which makes it so difficult for people. You know, you call it this the Food Junkies podcast, and that's, I'm sure, because of this addictive nature of Absolutely. That's what we're about, yes. Yeah, exactly. So to me, it's sugar is one major component, but particularly the fructose component. The the major additive, sugar additive is sucrose, and that's made up of 50% glucose and 50% fructose. And it's particularly the fructose component, which is really damaging. Then we have what we call the refined carbohydrates. So products such as highly refined white flour and white rice, white potatoes, and the foods prepared from these. So these are virtually pure starch, and starch is simply long chains of glucose, which breaks down into single glucose molecules as soon as it enters the gut. In fact, it's a process that begins as soon as those, um, as soon as starch enters the mouth with salivary amylase. Yes. 
And the third thing is a, a seed oils, what we often euphemistically call vegetable oils, but they're not made from vegetables. They're made from seeds such as um, sunflower, safflower, canola. So these are, are rich in omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are a driver of insulin resistance independently of sugar. And if you look at these three components, so sugar, refined carbohydrates, particularly the highly refined white flour, and the seed oils, they're the major components of ultra-processed foods, what I prefer to call ultra-processed food-like substances, unhealthy substances that we consume in excess. And I believe in the United States, something like 62% of the calories of food consumed are ultra-processed. In the UK, I think it's over 50% now. And I suspect in Australia, we're probably nudging close to that mark. And we know that ultra-processed foods are unhealthy. We know they're linked to a range of chronic diseases, including type 2 diabetes. So it's those components which are really driving this. And if you look at the fact that something like three quarters of our food and drinks have added sugars, and if we realize how addictive sugar is, then you realize that we've got a real problem here. And we can sort of, we can, if you like, deep even digger into, into how this causes the damage. Yes. Yes, I'm very interested in that because the thing that I I found interesting, you did a wonderful summary. Thank you for our our audience. But so you talked about fructose and then you talked about glucose too. So starches are the glucose. So both of those things lead to insulin resistance and potentially ill health in the various manifestations. Please tell us about the physiology of that or the pathology of that. Yeah, so insulin resistance is this big driver of metabolic dysfunction. Yes. And, And actually... When we, if we call it metabolic dysfunction, it's a, a slowly increasing cascade of problems, which begins with the insulin resistance and the fatty liver goes on to pre-diabetes and then ultimately type 2 diabetes. So it's a, it's a continuum, it's a spectrum, but it, they've deemed type 2 diabetes to arrive at a particular point along that spectrum. But really the damage even begins in pre-diabetes and even earlier with insulin resistance. And yeah. we look at the, the fact that I think 93% of Americans are metabolically dysfunctional, then the majority of us are really you know, looking down the barrel of chronic diseases. And what happens with type 2 diabetes, let's say, is it damages the blood vessels throughout the body. And uh, you know, we have this amazing opportunity in ophthalmology to be able to see the damage that's being done. We have a window to what's happening in the rest that's, of the body. That's the diabetic retinopathy story, right? The diabetic retinopathy is, uh, so the retina is is like a film in the camera. It is uh, the light-sensitive layer of tissue that lines the inside of the backs of our eyes. And and those very fine blood vessels in the retina can be damaged in diabetes type 1 and type 2. And that can ultimately give rise to the the sight-threatening and and blinding complications of this disease. And there's, there's two major complications that we see in diabetic retinopathy or diabetes-related eye disease is often a preferable term. We can see damage to blood vessels that causes leakage of fluid into the macula, the central vision area of the retina. And that's probably, that is, sorry, not probably, that is the, the leading cause of loss of vision and blindness. So macular edema or diabetic macular edema. And this is driven by damage to a structure which lines the insides of every capillary, arterial, and artery throughout the body. It's a tissue called the endothelial glycocalyx. It's the largest tissue in the body. I think it, it, it covers up to 8,000 square, square metres of, of blood vessels. It's metabolically very active, but it's also quite fragile, and it can be damaged by hyperglycemia, by high blood sugar in the body. And we know in patients with diabetes, the endothelial glycocalyx is about 50% of the thickness of its normal thickness. And when the endothelial glycocalyx becomes damaged, you can then get leakage of fluid from the blood vessels into the tissues. Yes. And actually, this is happening into every tissue throughout our body. We have leakage of, so glucose is actually dissolved in the bloodstream. So you get leakage of the sugary water into every tissue of the body. And we see that certainly at the macula causing this swelling or edema, loss of vision and blindness. But that sugary water can cause what we call glycation. And glycation is when the glucose binds with proteins in the tissues causing under under heat 
and causes denaturing of those proteins. Yeah. That's what causes the damage ultimately as well. And so if you realize that fructose, the fructose component of sucrose is actually 10 times more glycating than glucose, and you realize that this is a, a very damaging process in the human body. And as I say, the eye, we have the opportunity to see and record the damage being done by glycation and damage to the endothelial glycocalyx with swelling at the back of the eyes. So the other major component of diabetes-related eye disease is blockage of blood vessels. Mm. Now, this can arise through a number of mechanisms, and hopefully I'm not going too deep here with, with the uh, biochemistry and pathophysiology, but... I find it fascinating, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, so far you've described uh, diabetic, what, what, what I would call retinopathy. And so that that's, and the, the treatment for that is that you try to, to mop up that, that leaking, as it were. Um, yeah. Now you're talking about the blockage and I don't know, please tell us what that leads to. And maybe that's just another, like, is that cataracts or is that uh, glaucoma? But anyway, start, continue with your, what you're doing. Sure, sure. We can come back to the later if you like. But you get blockage of blood vessels, and that can happen through a number of mechanisms. And again, the blockage happens throughout the body, but we can see the blockage in the eyes. Now, one of the blood tests that we use is HbA1c, and this is a measure of glycation of the protein hemoglobin in red blood cells. And for people who don't know, that's the three-month mark that the doctor measures. They do the blood sugar and the glycosylated hemoglobin to tell you what your status of blood, uh, of diabetes is, not just that day, but in general. Exactly. And uh, over, I'm not sure what the reading is in the States, but in Australia, over 6.5 is a sort of a diagnosis yeah. of actual diabetes. Over 6 is a diagnosis of prediabetes. But we know that the cardiovascular risk is, is even increased in patients with an HbA1c over 5.5. So basically, HbA1c is a record of glycation of the proteins in red blood cells. So we know that glycation is happening. We know that the damage is happening. But what also happens when you get glycation of red blood cells is that they become less flexible. So when they're trying to pass through those very fine blood vessels, the capillaries in the retina and throughout the rest of the body, is you get a slowing of the flow of blood and you get a lack of oxygen flow, what we call ischemia or a hypoxia, and that can contribute to these ischemic complications of type 2 diabetes. So that's one thing. Which is essentially, for people who don't know, death of cells in the eye. You can get death of cells in the eye, in the yeah, retinal, in the light-sensitive layer of, of tissue yes. in the eye. And we can see that. We can do what's called a fundus fluorescein angiogram. The fundus is our term for the back of the eye, and we can actually do an angiogram where we inject some dye into the blood vessel and have a look at the passage of the blood through the retinal blood vessels in the eye, and we can see where there's actually a lack of flow. So we can see this ischemia, this blockage of the capillaries, which can then have a blinding impact on patients. So what happens when you get a lack of oxygen flow? You get an abnormal response within the eye where you get the growth of abnormal blood vessels into the eye. And those they're trying to almost heal these areas of damage and they're fragile and they're abnormal. It's not a, it's not a normal uh, process. And so you can then get bleeding from those abnormal blood vessels into the jelly, which fills the inside of the back of the eye, what we call the vitreous. You can get an, a sudden bleeding inside the eye, which can often present as uh, the sudden appearance of shadows or floaters in the field of vision. But in Neil's in yeah. Neil's case, it actually presented as sudden blindness in both eyes, which fortunately is very rare. Usually the telltale sign is a sudden appearance of floaters, and then we look inside the eyes and we can see the blood accumulating there. Let me just ask you, when a person complains of a floater, it can be for another reason than that, right? Because I know people are going to be listening going, geez, I have floaters. Does that mean I have diabetic issues? Maybe yeah. not, or definitely yeah. yes. No, yeah, no, very, very good point. And I was just about to go on to say oh, that that... As we get older, and everyone will experience this, we have changes in the jelly, in the vitreous, and we can have what we call vitreous detachment. So the vitreous, which fills the inside of the backs of our eyes, will suddenly separate from the retina, which lines the inside of the backs of our eyes. So it's called a vitreous detachment, and it happens in everyone ultimately. And when you have that separation, 
couple of things can happen. You can get some flashes of light as the, the jelly pulls away from the retina and, and triggers some of those photoreceptors, some of those light-sensitive cells in the retina. But once the jelly is separated, it sits in front of the retina, casts a little shadow back onto the retina, which you see as those floaties or floaties. Yeah. Often call them. So that will happen in everyone. So the sudden appearance of floaties is not in the vast majority of people related to diabetes. And usually patients will know they have diabetes, either type 1 or type 2, when, if and when they get that outcome. So it would be very, very rare to present with that as a first-stage presentation of, of type 2 diabetes, for example. So, yeah, they don't want everyone to run out and think they've got diabetes if they notice they have floaters. But yeah. also the jelly in the eye is not optically completely clear. There are remnants from embryology. And even in young people, if they go and look at a bright sky or a, or a piece of white paper or a white wall, they'll see little shadows, little cobwebs sort of floating around. So those are floaters. And people will notice that. I remember sitting outside lying and looking up at the sky and seeing little black uh, spots. You probably all uh, remember yeah. that. But this is something quite different later in life and usually would appear in sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, where you suddenly have this separation of the jelly and suddenly often in association with uh, flashes of light. And the one concern about vitreous detachment outside of diabetes is it can occasionally tear the retina and lead to detachment of the retina, which is also sight-threatening. So if someone in their later in life notices a sudden appearance of floaters in one or both eyes, it's worth having their eyes checked. Go to the local optometrist. Go to your local ophthalmologist to have those checks. Yeah. So thanks for clarifying that. Now, one of the other things that I didn't mention is, is one of the other big drivers, one of the other metabolic dysfunctional outcomes of, of our poor diet is what we call atherogenic dyslipidemia. Huh? Now, I'm not sure how, how deeply you want to dive into the science here, but basically fructose and the seed oils we talked about before, the seed oils become oxidized even in in the bottle they become more oxidized when we cook them and they become more oxidized in the body essentially and, rancid yeah rancid. exactly exactly yeah, okay. and it's really the linoleic acid component which is particularly harmful so what happens then is you can get glycation of an element of what we call low density lipoprotein in the blood the glycation from fructose and oxidation from these linoleic acids. So you can get this combined glycooxidation damage of the lipoprotein particles. And what happens then is that these lipoprotein, these low-density lipoprotein particles, stay in the system for much longer. They become smaller and denser, so what we call small, dense lipoprotein yeah. particles. And these small, dense lipoprotein particles are no longer identified by the liver. Normally, but, but how does that lead to eye disease? Let's not get too into the detail. Just more. No, honest. exactly, exactly. Okay. So what happens then? These these small dense particles are not taken up by the liver and, and the normal process, but they are taken up by scavenger cells, what we call macrophages, in the walls of blood vessels, yeah. and that triggers uh, inflammation and it triggers the formation of plaques or fatty yeah. plaques within the walls of the blood vessels. And this in turn is what leads to narrowing of the blood vessels and ultimately what gives rise to, to obstruction of the flow of fluid and blood in the blood vessels, and particularly the larger blood vessels. That's why we have these devastating complications of, of diabetes, which can be stroke and heart attacks due to... But blockage. also in the eye, you can actually get infarcts in the eye, like little mini strokes, as it were? Yeah, that's right, exactly. So you, you, we have what we call microvascular, so small blood vessel complications and macrovascular. So ma macrovascular uh, stroke and, and heart attacks, which happen in about 80% of people with diabetes will ultimately succumb to those macrovascular complications. Uh, also gangrene, so lack of fluid and blood flow to, to the legs. Yes. The microvascular complications of, in essence, the eye complications, the kidney complications, dementia, which we see in about 70% of patients with yeah. diabetes and, and a number of other. So basically it's causing damage to every, every structure, every tissue, every organ in our bodies. Hi, I'm Clarissa Kennedy, and I'm a perfectionist, not a recovering perfectionist, a proud perfectionist. And if this sounds like something you are, then our Sweet Sobriety May workshop on perfectionism is for you. In the wellness world, the language around perfectionism is shame-inducing. 
In the medical model, perfectionism is pathologized, something to be cured, healed, treated. Tagging perfectionism onto anything we don't like becomes almost second nature. Can't stick to our food plan because we had a slip? Perfectionism. Inability to love our body, perfectionism. Feeling anxious about what other people think of me, perfectionism. Can't sleep because I'm worrying about a presentation tomorrow, perfectionism. Perfectionism is a phenomenon, not a disorder. The larger culture is more focused on the dysfunctional emphasis of perfectionism because the mental health industry is built on an illness model. We're always more focused on the dysfunctional aspects of every psychological experience. All the material out there right now is about how to overcome, let go of, even how to escape the tyranny of perfectionism. Oh, I just have to lower my standards? Why didn't I think of that? Managing perfectionism by telling perfectionists not to be perfectionists is like telling angry people to calm down. Never has this worked. Perfectionists won't be average. It's like telling an artist not to create or stripping a writer of their ability to compose. What we haven't been told is there are two different types of perfectionism, adaptive and maladaptive. Psychology professor and researcher, Dr. Joachim Stober, is the leading expert on perfectionism, as well as author of the book, The Psychology of Perfectionism, Theory, Research, and Application. In his research, he found that adaptive perfectionists demonstrated the highest levels of self-esteem cooperation, and lower levels of procrastination, defensiveness, maladaptive coping styles, and interpersonal problems. They report the highest level of meaning, subjective happiness, and life satisfaction, also the lowest levels of anxiety and depression among the groups. Maladaptive perfectionism has been linked both conceptually and empirically to eating disorders and disordered eating behaviors. Studies have shown that individuals in recovery from these eating disorders are even more perfectionist than healthy controls. This bolsters its role as a risk factor for return of disordered eating symptoms and as almost a scar that remains in recovery. Perfectionism used to hold me back, and that's because I thought it was a bad thing. Now I've embraced that it is my superpower, and I know that adaptive perfectionism is a good thing. I can use it to strive and accomplish in a positive, not a punitive way. This course is the ultimate guide to finding a self-compassionate way to manage our perfectionism. In this course, you'll learn what type of perfectionist are you? Adaptive perfectionism versus maladaptive perfectionism. Perfectionistic strivings and perfectionistic concerns. Behaviors of perfectionism, rules for living, unhelpful rules and assumptions, questions to help you examine your perfectionism, the power of perfectionism, how to deal with comparison, celebrating your perfectionism, 10 Jedi mind tricks to unlock you from overthinking everything, such as counterfactual thinking, effective forecasting, and so many more, and eight behavioral strategies for restoration habits for long-term growth reframing, boundaries, how to trust yourself, and more. If any of this resonates with you, you are the reason I created this course. I hope that by applying these teachings, you can clear away the baggage that stands in your way and become a more fully realized human being. The world needs you to step up and give the gift of you. Life is hard whether or not you choose to become the person we both know you really are. So this course is giving you permission to go for it, to stop denying who you are and unleash your inner dynamo so you can live your powerful and authentic life. We can learn to enjoy our lives. Enjoy meaning enjoy. Joy holds tremendous power. It is impossible to live joyfully without your joy benefiting the world. You persuade joy to come out of hiding and step into the spotlight through celebration. It's not enough to simply learn to appreciate perfectionism. Perfectionism is meant to be celebrated. What you get in this course is hours of pre-recorded videos, no expiration, downloadable resources and suggested at-home practices, no expiration, and four one-hour live support sessions, one per week with replay. The cost is $50 US. It'll be held every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time starting May 10th. Sign up at sweetsobriety.ca. Can't wait to see you there. 
So it, it would, would it be fair to say that since you made the link between the microvascular and Alzheimer's, that looking in a person's eye and their retina, which is you said was, I think you said it was like a mirror of the system, the whole body system, you could almost conclude if there's damage in the eye, that the same similar process is happening in the brain, i.e. potential formation of plaques for Alzheimer's? Yeah, so so absolutely. So there's for a parallel. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. So the damage is happening everywhere, including the brain. Yeah. And, you know, there are a number of other elements that, that are going on here, including inflammatory elements as well, yes. which, are, which are driving all of these changes. And so that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> we can go even deeper. But but in essence, yeah, it's that lack of, it's the glycation, it's the, the, the leakage of, of sugary water into the tissues. It's the inflammation that's driven by this, the slowing of blood flow through the fine blood vessels. It's the, the plaques that formation on formation right. in the walls of the larger blood vessels. So it's a combination of all these factors which ultimately cause the damage. What about cataracts? Is there any insulin resistance uh, physiology happening in the development of cataracts and also a glaucoma? I know those are different conditions. One is in the lens, one is the pressure of the eye, but does sugar contribute to those illnesses as well? Sure. So um, certainly cataracts and people with diabetes, so people who are developing type 2 diabetes, let's say, later in life. However, what's extraordinary is that we're now seeing type 2 diabetes developing in children. When I was in medical yeah. school, it was called maturity onset diabetes, and, and yes. type 1 diabetes was called juvenile onset diabetes. But we're now yeah. seeing type 2 diabetes developing in kids, and we've seen them in this country, in Australia, as young as three. In fact, Northern Australia leads the world for type 2 diabetes in kids. That's a whole other story. But, uh, yeah, it, it, can, it can happen in kids, and, and I must say, Yes, so the damage can happen at an early age. It's rare to see loss of vision in children, but the damage certainly happens at an early, early stage. Yes, sorry, I forgot the original question. So cataracts is a clouding of the lens. Is sugar, does it contribute to that? Yeah. Yeah. So as this increasing blood sugar level happening in the body, as this continues through prediabetes into type 2 diabetes, the hyperglycemia, the high sugar level in the blood can cause fluid shifts in the lens inside the eye. Mm. And it's those fluid shifts that can actually cause variability in the vision. And people, let's say, prior to a diagnosis or during a diagnosis of, of diabetes type 1 or type 2 can notice some blurring of the vision due to the fluid shifts within the eye. So that's one of the things that we can see inside the eye and its impact on the lens of the eye. But one of the other things is with the lens of the eye, it can in patients with type 2 diabetes, with diabetes, there's an increase in, in a product called sorbitol. And that sorbitol can ultimately damage the lens fibers in the eye, causing cataract. So we do see cataract developing in an earlier age with in patients with diabetes. I mean, a bit like vitreous detachment we talked about mm-hmm. before. Everyone will ultimately also get a cataract if they live long enough. Yes. Patients with type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes will usually develop cataract at an earlier age. Again, at early, so instead of the typical age of around, what, 60, 65, maybe 70, it might be as early as 50? Yeah, yeah, probably, let's say, certainly into the 60s in people without diabetes, we'd, we'd normally see cataracts starting in the, in the 70s and 80s. Oh, okay, I guess I'm moving ahead. It's because I see well, yeah, let's say 10, I haven't got the, the stats to share with you, but, okay. but no, let's say on 10 years, probably okay. earlier than average. Okay. Uh, now, what about glaucoma? Is there any role that sugar uh, can play with um, or insulin resistance can play with uh, glaucoma? Yeah, so there's no definite linkage between, as, I'm, as far as I'm aware at this point in time, between okay. diabetes and glaucoma. But, but glaucoma, pressure. We, often, we often, yeah, we often thought of it as uh, due to high pressure in the eye causing yes. damage to the main nerve at the back of the eye. But actually, we know now that, that glaucoma is, is more than, the, than just this. So we need a susceptibility of the nerve. And what's mm-hmm. going to make what we call the optic nerve the main nerve that takes all of those fibres from the retina and sends them back to the brain. And what will make the, and it's what we call an optic neuropathy, so pathology involving the optic nerve. What we know um, now that that you have to have a susceptibility, and there's no doubt if people have got compromised blood vessels supplying that optic nerve, then they're going to be more 
susceptible yeah. to yeah. higher pressure inside the eye. So uh, I'm actually one of my colleagues who's a professor, a glaucoma specialist. We're now looking into this possibility that metabolic dysfunction, re- insulin resistance can be a driver potentially of glaucoma as well. So no definites there, but uh, you know, I suspect okay. it plays and a Thank you. And then what about uh, macular degeneration? So that's like the bane of, I guess, people who are in their 80s and 90s for blindness, macular degeneration. How does that fit? Yeah, so the leading cause of blindness in high-income countries, what we used to call developed countries like the States, North America, Canada, Australia, is age-related macular degeneration. The leading cause of blindness in working age adults in our countries, as I mentioned, is diabetic retinopathy. The yes. leading cause of blindness overall is a, a cataract, and, and particularly in poorer countries and low-income okay. countries, what we used to call developing countries. So if we look at age-related macular degeneration, the leading cause of blindness uh, overall in, in wealthier countries, I have a strong suspicion, and I know there's one of my colleagues in the States, Chris Kenobi, K-N-O-B-B-E, you may well know, is doing a lot of work and really strongly believes and has done a lot of research, is about to release a book showing the link between seed oils and age-related macular degeneration. So if we realise then that seed oils, you know, basically everything is fried these days. Fast food is fried in seed oils. People yeah. often use seed oils at home to, to to fry foods in, to cook foods in, thinking that they were healthier because for the last half century, they've been told that polyunsaturated fats are healthier, healthier for us than saturated fats. So suddenly everything's been cooked in seed oils for the last half century. To our detriment, you know, we're, we're just getting exposed to this. And we're also getting exposed to it, of course, through ultra-processed foods, which are often containing seed oils. And Chris um, strongly believes that this is a big driver of, of age-related macular degeneration. So I don't, I'm not entirely convinced that sugar itself is driving this, but if we realise that sugar is potentially causing damage and glycation, I'm sure there's a contributing factor as well. Yes. Okay. So have we covered all of the potential dangers in terms of eye health, various manifestations of eye health that sugar can cause? There's hundreds of eye diseases, and I'm sure that there are others that we could explore, but I think those would be the main ones if you realise. Okay. Cataract, so now, I was going to say, if we realise that cataract is the leading cause of blindness in the world, yes. age-related macular degeneration is the leading cause of blindness in wealthier countries, diabetic retinopathy is the leading cause of blindness in working-age adults, and the fastest-growing cause of blindness in, in poorer communities and glaucoma is the leading cause of preventable blindness in the world, then the major causes of blindness in this world are most likely driven by dietary factors, particularly sugar and seed oils. Right. So that, I mean, that just goes to the next part because I find this fascinating, but we have to get to more stuff. So here you are saying basically what we do in general ophthalmology is mop up the damage, but you're saying, no, we have to go to the prevention. It makes so much more sense to look at the dietary factors so that we don't have to mop up the mess later. So how did you get from there? Because that, But that's not a standard position that ophthalmology takes. So how did you get from there to where you are now, which is yeah, to look yeah. at prevention and call, call out the sugar industry and, and the government that supports it? Exactly. Now, if you realize that the di- diabetes, let's say, let's say we'll now focus on type 2 diabetes because type yeah, 1 diabetes sure. is not is not preventable and it's not reversible. But type 2 diabetes is largely preventable, particularly if we're considering a a dietary disease. And I suspect most of my colleagues, most of my medical colleagues would realise that type 2 diabetes is is largely preventable. And how can we prevent type 2 diabetes? Basically, if we minimise, and particularly in childhood, minimise our consumption of sugary drinks. And by sugary drinks, I also include fruit juices because a glass of orange juice, for example, has virtually as much sugar as a glass of, of cola. And also energy drinks and flavoured milk. So basically, sugary drinks are a big driver of a metabolic dysfunction. Minimise our consumption of refined carbohydrates, seed oils, and also ultra-processed foods. So if we basically minimise our consumption throughout our life of those elements, you know, we can avoid the whole vegan versus carnivore discussion. Just focus on real food where most of us would be highly unlikely to develop these devastating metabolic dysfunctional outcomes. So that's that's one thing that's really important to be realised and to be aware of, not just for medical practitioners, but for the general public as well. So awareness is a really critical element here. The other thing that 
I suspect most of my medical colleagues would not be aware of is that type 2 diabetes is potentially reversible. Mm. Now, there's three clinically proven methods that can actually put type 2 diabetes into remission. So some people prefer the word remission to reverse reversibility. But there are three clinically proven modalities that can actually put type 2 diabetes into remission. I didn't know that several years ago. Mm-hmm. I would say probably four years ago, I was unaware. You know, we were told by the leading body, Diabetes Australia, the very first sentence up till two years ago in the type 2 diabetes page of their website was type 2 diabetes is a progressive disease. Most health bodies consider it a progressive disease, but it does not have to be a progressive Uh disease. You can actually potentially reverse it. So what are the three clinically proven methods? Firstly, and not uh, not the one that I would be saying is is first line, is is something called bariatric surgery. This Uh is surgery on our gastrointestinal system to basically limit the caloric intake and yeah. it's, it's a series of major abdominal procedures which are both risky and expensive on what is a normal healthy organ. It's some, it, is, it does have a role, but if we're going to call this a dietary disease, then surely there's a dietary approach to a dietary disease. So this is something that we should leave as a last line strategy. And fortunately, there are two we'll dietary approaches. Mm. So there's yeah. something called a very low calorie diet. And this is essentially an 800-calorie-a-day starvation diet, which is uh, nutritionally deficient. It's neither enjoyable nor sustainable, and it relies on ultra-processed foods, soups and shakes. But it has been shown to work through the direct study out of the UK. But I'm not a big fan. I'm a fan of using real food. And basically, you can use real food, basically minimising the consumption of carbohydrate, so low carbohydrate or what we call a ketogenic diet, what I prefer to call an encompassing term, therapeutic carbohydrate restriction, there are now over 100 controlled clinical trials to show it works. Now, I was actually on the National Diabetes Strategy Working Group over the last three years, and I managed to get remission of type 2 diabetes into that document for the first time. And that came out in 2021, probably about a year and a half ago, I think, or maybe a couple of years ago. We had that document released. And once I was comfortable that that was in our document, I started having conversations with my patients. Now, I have probably in the order of 150 patients with sight-threatening diabetes-related eye disease that I'm actively managing. I'm injecting into the eye. I'm lasering them to try and keep their vision. And let's say the first 100, I, had, I was having a chat to them as they came into my clinic be aware that your disease could potentially be put into remission. And I underscore the word potentially because it's not, it doesn't work for everyone and there are reasons for that. But probably the first 100, there was only one patient that was aware that their disease could be put into remission. So this is a conversation that's not being had at the most basic levels with the nutritionists, dietitians, and general practitioners. So I then started working with a local nutritionist and I, I now probably have in the order of over over 20 patients who put their diabetes into remission. There are a number that come to, to mind. I had one yeah. young woman who actually reversed her di- type 2 diabetes in two weeks. She came off insulin, yeah. off all medications. And what I've noticed... Yeah, what happened and, to their eyes? I, this is a cliffhanger. What happened yeah, to their eyes? Did it get better? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So oh, we talked God. earlier about, about diabetic macular edema, the swelling that builds up at, at yeah. the central vision area, we can actually record the thickness of the swelling with a with a, a piece of equipment called an OCT. And what I noticed with her, and, and she didn't even, fortunately, she wasn't requiring treatment, but I was getting to the stage of, you know, you might need treatment very soon. We were watching her closely. And then I got her to see the nutritionist. And over the last six to 12 months, let's say, she put her diabetes into remission. And what we noticed was that that edema was slowly resolving. And yeah, so that that was super exciting to see. And this is remission in action because we have the opportunity in ophthalmology to see the damage being done. We can also see the damage in reverse. And this That's is amazing. That's this just is amazing. amazing. Yeah. And I've started, uh, this has never been reported before. I'm actually doing a, a study on it at the moment and been presenting it at some conferences. This has never been seen or let's say never been reported before. So this is seriously exciting stuff and we can really apply this to the rest of the body. But I have now a number of patients that almost universally when they drop their carb consumption, when they drop their seed oil consumption, when they drop their 
consumption of sugar and ultra-processed foods. When they go back to consuming real food, we're seeing this positive impact. We're seeing a reduction in the edema. Patients who are having regular injections, what I'm finding is that I can push out the frequency of their injections, even get them off their injections. Amazing. That's just amazing. Very, very exciting. So So, that's so exciting. How are other ophthalmologists taking to this? Are they are they listening to you? Are they dismissive? Like, what what what's the reaction to this? Uh, I don't. I've had a, a couple of people come up to me and say what well, they've noticed this as well. But I, I, get, I presented late last year at a conference uh, in Australia, a national conference, and you know it's an interesting dilemma I suspect for medical practitioners when, let's say, a significant proportion of their livelihood <laughs> is treating patients with type 2 diabetes. And now we're saying, well, we can actually reverse this disease yeah. potentially with, with diet without actually resorting to medications, without actually resorting to sticking needles into people's eyes. You know, it's, it's a lucrative business. It's a lucrative business for the pharmaceutical industry. It's a lucrative business for for surgeons, for physicians, for my colleagues. And so when, when you know, you say, hey, guys, you know, we can actually do this naturally with, with change in diet, you know, some people may not take to that. But I certainly haven't had any active opposition from my colleagues, at least. But I think I haven't got the word out there quite to the level that I need to yet. But what I'm ultimately doing, and I'm hoping to present at our major national conference a little later in the year in Australia, and then hopefully then go more broadly across the world uh, to raise awareness amongst my colleagues that we should all be exploring this. Now, if you realise that virtually every patient, we'd like to think that virtually every patient will see optometrists or ophthalmologists, we are in a great position to have the conversation, maybe have the first conversation with our patients, hey, did you realise that you can potentially reverse your disease? I think you should go back and have a chat to your GP. And that's exactly what I did. I wrote to the GP saying, let's see if we can, you know, our mutual patient, let's see if we can reverse the disease using therapeutic carbohydrate restrictions. So we can have that that discussion with our patients. Podiatrists who are often assessing the, the feet, you know, for the gangrenous complications, they can also have these conversations. So once we get that word out broadly into these health specialties, then I think we'll really start to shift the dial from the ground up. So that message of hope, which I really am hearing and what you're saying, is that what got you the Australian Person of the Year? No, not at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, interestingly, so that was three years ago, 2020, and an amazing year to get a you know, 2020 vision, 2020 Australian of the Year. It was uh, on our National Australia Day on the, in January 2020 when I received the award. But I received the award because of the work that I've done with my non-profit site for all, which is a, a social impact organisation dedicated to fighting blindness. We're now impacting on, on, on over a million people every year, primarily in Asia, as I mentioned earlier. So I received the award because of that. So it's a lovely accolade. But I use the platform. So it's a very powerful platform in this country. I use that platform to to raise awareness, to advocate for patients with type 2 diabetes, because I realise that this is the biggest health crisis that we have in this country. In fact, it's the biggest health crisis we have globally. Absolutely. Well, and you've you've cited the numbers, right? We know you know what they are in Australia. We can only imagine in North America, can you know, Canada, US combined, it's so much worse. And, you know, it sounds like you're on a mission. So is that what's next for you is just to continue like teaching and being passionate about getting sugar out of like your client's diet, like talking Mm. about diabetes reversal. Is that what's next for you? Is there a book? I don't know. What's next? Oh, there's, there's multiple layers to this. And I, I am going to write a book. In fact, I'm retiring from my my clinical role in the middle of the year, I actually have a neurological problem with my hand, unfortunately, uh, something I inherited from my father, which is forcing me into an early retirement. But I've got plenty to keep me occupied, including a, a book that I'm going to be writing about this. But really the solution, as I see it, is sort of multi-pronged strategy. And you talked about a sugar tax early. And that's one element of multiple elements that need, we need a systemic change here. Yes. And it involves... Three action strategies of awareness, accountability, and assistance. And we can go into all of these in great detail, but but this needs systemic change. So I've also started a network for systemic change, and we've been working over the past year, and we're about to go, go public with this network, 
because when you have a systemic problem, there's no one individual or entity or institution that can actually deal with it and, and change it. It has to be a system-wide approach. So you need to weave all of the players together to have this impact that you ultimately need. And so that's one thing that's happening and I'm continuing to grow and, and be involved in. I've been involved in a lot of awareness-raising strategies, accountability. You know, I've been meeting with our federal and state health ministers to discuss the problem and discuss my strategy to reverse it. So that's I've been having a lot of high-level meetings to try and to hold the food industry to account, particularly the ultra-processed and sugary drinks and fast food industries, which I believe are the major drivers of all of this metabolic dysfunction that we're faced with. And again, there's, there's a lot of detail going on there. And the final action strategy is assistance. And we need assistance again, at multiple layers, amongst the public, amongst patients, amongst medical students, doctors, cooks, chefs, et cetera. Um, yeah. Again, we can go into great depth, but if I look at health practitioners, my son, he's now in fifth year medicine, in second year medicine, he had the opportunity to do nutrition science as an elective. It wasn't even compulsory. And now one of our major training grounds for, for doctors. And so then GPs need assistance. They need the time and the resources to have these really critical discussions with their patients. And so one of the things that we're doing now is actually putting together, in fact, we're coming to the final stage of a guideline for therapeutic carbohydrate restriction. And what we then hope to do is embed that in medical school training, in continuing professional development for, for GPs and other doctors. We're also in discussions with uh, dietitians to actually embed it in their pre- and postgraduate training. And so there's there's a lot of work being going on to to try and to shift the dial on this, this significant systemic problem. And as I say, we can go into a lot more detail. But one of the other things, rather than a, a tax on sugary drinks, which is really not a popular strategy for governments is, sorry, there's my cuckoo clock going off in the distance, is to actually remove the subsidies, the tax breaks that an ultra-processed food industry receives. In Australia, to the order of $5 billion in tax breaks to market their unhealthy products at us. And that doesn't include the bill to taxpayers to to deal with the the fallout of these unhealthy products. So that's something I've been focusing on a bit with my discussions with with government. Wow. So definitely you have plenty to do, even if there is retirement in your future. It sounds like you're not going to be very retired at all. (laughs) I look forward to my days off and my days on. Yes. 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 I look forward to, to hearing more about you as you continue that work. So before we let you go, Dr. Muki, we have a signature question that we ask everyone. We kind of tailor it to our, our guests. So for you, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about use or abuse of sugar, what would it be? Yeah, it's interesting. I remember back, I've often thought about my sugar consumption as a kid, and I suspect it's dramatically different to to the sugar consumption in kids these days. And I remember my father on a Friday evening, we used to all gather around the TV in the evening and dad would bring these sort of uh, lollies and we'd have a it was like a kind of a muesli bar thing, I, I suppose you would say. We'd sit around and watch our favourite TV programmes on a Friday evening after dinner and Dad would, would give us each a muesli bar. And that was, in, in essence, all we, we had in the terms of confectionery or what you call candy in North America. Yeah. But as I got older, as I had access to, to more money, then my sugar consumption certainly increased. And what I would say to my younger self, I suppose, would be, And I think most kids would have no idea of the dangers of sugar consumption, of the dangers of added sugar in our diet, of the dangers of fruit juices, is I just say, look, you know, just just be careful, watch your sugar intake, and particularly be careful of the fruit juices, which I used to swallow by the gallon, I suppose, you know, thinking and parents thought that they were were healthy. I think most parents still think that fruit juices are are healthy, but they're they're not. They're basically you squeezing the fiber out of the fruit, the whole fruit, and you just left with a sugary juice. So you're getting a really big sugar hit. So I think as kids, be aware of, of sugary drinks, be aware of seed oils, and be aware of margarines. Mm-hmm. Basically, don't fear natural saturated fats in our diet, which have never actually been linked to cardiovascular disease, and yet right. they're still demonized to this day. 
don't fear meat and don't fear red meat, which again have been demonised for the last half century. And there's a number of drivers for that. So I think there are a number of messages I would give to my younger self. And they're primarily diet. You know, certainly back then, I was super active and we know that our poor diet is responsible for more disease and death than smoking, alcohol and inactivity combined. You know, Simon Capel's work out of the UK. So this is primarily about diet, what we consume, stick to real foods rather than ultra-processed crap. Right on. Thank you so much, Dr. Muki. You really opened my eyes, literally, <laughs> no pun intended, on how the eye is the one mirror of what's happening in terms of uh, disease progression, but also the hope that it's also in the mirror of how we can actually regress some of our disease. So I thank you so much for a wonderfully enlightening, I'm sorry to keep using these two words, but they're so appropriate, this wonderfully enlightening uh, podcast. Thank you, Dr. Miyuki. You're most welcome. Thanks so much again for having me on the program. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.